When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A fair cop? The climate summit tries to reach a deal on global warming targets. Rivian revs the electric truck maker's $66 billion market debut. And Beeple's blowout. The digital artist's sculpture sells for nearly $30 million. Hear his reaction to that news live. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. <laughs> Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be with you on a landmark day here on CNN. It's our first annual Call to Earth Day. We're talking 24 hours of live coverage, raising awareness about the environmental crisis facing our planet, and most importantly, the people who are striving to address it, plus how you can help make a difference too. Later this hour, we'll be joined by the CEO of the Rainforest Alliance, a nonprofit best known for its ethical food labels and its work promoting climate smart agriculture. Also today, the Airbnb co-founder Nathan Blahajic on the tourist torrent coming to America and how the platform is adapting to cater to our evolving post-lockdown travel tastes. A slightly bitter taste, meanwhile, for investors booking profits after a remarkable record run and eight straight days of gains for the S&P 500. More tasty, perhaps, UK stocks. JP Morgan says they are trading at a, quote, record discount. Cue a rally, too, at Marks & Spencer. Sparks flying at the UK retailer up 15% after they raised their guidance. And from Sparks... To poor inflation marks, the United States reporting within the past hour that consumer prices rose by almost 1% last month and more than 6% year over year. That is a 30-year high for those numbers. And over in China, fresh Chinese data showing CPI, consumer price inflation, doubling last month, while prices for goods leaving factories rose at the fastest pace on record. Inflation surprising, global temperatures still rising. The COP26 summit tops our drivers today. And the first draft of a potential agreement at COP26 reinforces the resolve to limit global heating to one and a half degrees Celsius. That change, obviously, post-industrial levels. But there's no detail yet on how governments plan to meet that goal. Meanwhile, a pledge to end the sale of fossil fuel-driven cars by 2040 is missing the signatures of some of the biggest players in the world, including two of the world's biggest automakers. Phil Black joins us on all of this. We'll circle back, Phil, and great to have you with us to the automakers. But this early draft to try and limit temperatures on the temperature heating, the world's heating to one and a half percent, the signatories have got to come back by the end of 2022 to say, look, this is the action that we're going to take. But right now, struggling to get everybody to sign, I see. Yeah, that language in particular, Julia, pointing to what happens next after COP26 is really important because we already knew at this conference the individual commitments by countries 
it's not enough to add up to keeping temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. We also know from the science that countries have got to act dramatically this decade to cut emissions by around half. This is detailed in the draft too. This is the crucial stuff. And what it means is we don't have time to wait another five years for countries that haven't detailed commitments this decade to go away, think about it, and then come back. It is pushing for action in the next few years. Crucially, they've got to come back uh, and revise their commitments next year. Then there is talk of a high-level ministerial meeting next year, followed by a meeting of world leaders the year after. This is crucial because it provides the opportunity for countries to revisit, revamp, come back with commitments that still hold a chance of hitting the necessary emission cuts this decade, which will then keep that 1.5 dream alive. So we will be looking to see what countries, if any, push back on that. It is likely it is going to be countries that have not indicated they are willing to make significant cuts this decade, such as Russia, potentially China, Australia, and so forth. But this is the language in the draft that is perhaps most key to ultimately determining whether or not this conference will be considered a success when it closes. Julia. And speaking of success, talk to us about the efforts by some of the car makers to limit emissions too. I mean, we've got some of the biggest car makers in the world, Volkswagen, Toyota, the Renault-Nissan Alliance and Hyundai-Kia not signing up to this. And I mention them specifically for a reason. Yeah, well, this is a big disappointment, I think, for the British government, which wanted this declaration to be widely adopted by big car-making countries and the companies that operate within them, obviously. The end list is pretty paltry. The, the big car-makers just simply aren't there. The commitment was to largely or entirely working towards be producing zero-emissions cars by 2040 at the outside. It seems that this was just simply a step too far for these countries and these companies uh, to commit to, perhaps for uh, domestic political reasons, but also a one-size-fits-all deadline was always going to be a difficult, perhaps clunky push for an industry that is global, that operates in countries that are at very different stages of green energy uh, transition, where there are very different stages uh, and advancement when it comes to installing the necessary infrastructure for running huge fleets of electric vehicles and, and so forth. So ultimately, this is It's not as substantial as the British government would have hoped. It had named cars as one of the the key points that it had hoped to make real progress on uh, at this conference. And that's simply not going to be the case, even though within within the industry, the direction of travel is set. The commitment and the ambition is already quite significant. The growth within the market for these products is really big and expected to continue going that way. But for the entire industry to coalesce around a single deadline was just simply not possible at this conference. Yeah, I was just looking at some of the details here. And obviously, we've heard on this show, the technology is not there yet. Some of the car makers saying we're not willing to make the commitment, whether it's electric or hydrogen. We don't know what the future holds to make a commitment this big today in order to be able to achieve it. But something's got to give. Phil Black, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you so much for that. Speaking of electric, Rivian gearing up for a mammoth IPO. The Amazon-backed electric vehicle company is making what could be the biggest stock exchange debut in the U.S. for nearly a decade. Paula Monica joins us on this story. This is a whopping valuation, I think, for a company, admittedly with some big backers, as I mentioned there, that's expected to burn, I believe, $1.3 billion worth of cash in this quarter. And in the prospectus I read, revenues ranging from zero to $1 million. 
Wow. Yes. This is obviously a bet on the future, Julia, without question. You mentioned Amazon is a big backer, but of course, Ford is also an investor in Rivian. Rivian, there's a lot of hype. And can they justify a valuation that could be around 70 billion or so based on where the stock you know, begins uh, trading today? That remains to be seen. They lost nearly a billion dollars in just the first six months of this year. Pre-orders are coming in from consumers for its SUVs and other vehicles. There's nearly 50,000 and, you know, consumers can probably expect to start getting them delivered in 2023. But it obviously this is a company that you have a very big bet from Amazon on their logistics side. They have an order in for 100,000 electric vans by 2025. Can Rivian deliver? They better. Yeah, I mean, this is this is key because what we need to understand is whether or not there's a firm commitment. Admittedly, Amazon is an investor, so it's your own investment that you're hurting if you're not committed to, to that um, order. What other fleet orders they can sign up to and then the order book for their SUEs. If you look at the demand, the sheer scale of demand in the United States alone for SUVs and for pickup trucks, it's enormous. So just capturing even a tiny fraction of this market will allow them to fulfill, if not more, their manufacturing capacity. The question is if. Yeah, they have currently only one manufacturing plant in Illinois. There have been reports that Rivian is looking to expand and have a second plant here somewhere in the United States. And that's probably going to be key because remember, Julia, it's not as if Rivian is the only electric vehicle company out there. There's a little company named Tesla that's got a more than trillion dollar market valuation and a CEO who I believe tends to go on Twitter every now and then, uh, you know, rumor has it. Obviously, there's Lucid Motors, which has gone bonkers lately with its stock price, a reflection of the investor fervor for electric vehicles writ large right now. So you can't obviously rule out the major auto companies as well. Ford and GM aren't going to lie down quietly and let the likes of Tesla and Elon Musk and Rivian and other EV startups eat their lunch. Yeah. And therein lies the key. Everybody's looking for the next Tesla or the second player behind Tesla. Um, And that is what this valuation is arguably saying. The question is, can they achieve it? Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The Polish Prime Minister is blaming Moscow for his country's border crisis. He says the eastern border is being, quote, brutally violated by the president of Belarus, who the Prime Minister claims is controlled by the Kremlin. Poland says nearly 600 migrants tried to illegally cross on Tuesday. CNN's Fred Pleitgen is following the story from Berlin. Fred, just bring us up to speed with what we've seen over the weekend and into this early week of people haven't been following this story. And how how the situation stands today. Well, I mean, it's certainly uh, escalated, especially into this week, when uh, really the main thing that is new uh, in this crisis is the fact that it's not a smaller group now anymore or smaller groups anymore that are trying to cross that border uh, between Poland and Belarus. But uh, essentially on Monday and then into Tuesday, there was a very large group that's now actually camped out at that border. And the Polish side says 
continuously or, or, or uh, time and again tries to rush the border, tries to get across and also tries to destroy the barbed wire fence that the Polish authorities have set up there. Uh, in fact, just a couple of minutes ago, a press conference finished between the Polish Prime Minister and the head of the European Council, Charles Michel, where um, Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki said that the Poles consider this to be a political crisis rather than a migrant crisis. And you mentioned it already, Poland, the European Union, and, and to a great extent, the United States as well, is accusing um, Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko of essentially uh, creating this crisis artificially, of luring many people to Belarus with the promise that they would be able to enter the European Union. And of course, that simply is not the case. Now, the Poles say they're not going to allow this to happen. And as of today, the Polish authorities say they have 15,000 troops and border officers at that border to make sure that the border is hermetically sealed. On the other side, the Belarusians are accusing the Poles of uh, spiking the, uh, the, the situation and, and making it worse. So you can really see how the crisis at the Poland-Belarus border is turning into a much larger crisis that, of course, could have a big destabilizing effect, not just between Poland and Belarus, but, of course, also between the European Union, NATO, Belarus and Russia as well. Julia? Yeah, I mean, this is a great point. The German foreign minister today said it's appalling. The images that we're seeing are appalling and they are. And whether mm. it's a political crisis or a migrant crisis, you've still got migrants there who are in Belarus. They're trying to cross over into, into Poland now and are stuck at the borders. We were just showing those images there. What can the EU do potentially to intervene here to, to mm. protect people who are now stuck? Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the things that we had to add to, uh, to that as well, Julia, is that, of course, right now, I mean, we're, we're sort of in the middle of November. It's extremely cold there, especially in the nights. I was keeping an eye on the temperatures there and they are well before a bit well below freezing in the night. So there's absolutely nothing there um, as far as any sort of sanitary facilities uh, as uh, food and water are difficult to come by. Medical facilities obviously are something that basically are non-existent as well. So it is really a very dire situation now that European Union um, uh, wants to try and not solve this, but it wants to try and put pressure not just on Alexander Lukashenko. They are talking about new sanctions uh, against the Belarusian regime, but they're also talking about pressure against the airlines who are flying people into Belarus. And that's also something that Charles Michel and, uh, and Matthias Morawiecki talked about. The Poles are calling for that. They say that airlines that knowingly fly people who are going to try and, uh, and cross that border to Belarus need to be sanctioned or blacklisted or put under pressure some other way. But that, those seem to be the tools that the European Union is working towards right now. At the same time, you do hear a lot of talk in the EU as well uh, of trying to uh, at least improve the situation of those who are caught there at the border. But right now, it really is difficult to see how much help is going to be able to reach them since they are on the Belarusian side. Of course, there are some Belarusian aid groups uh, that are helping, uh, at least to a certain extent, Julia. Yeah, but your point about the freezing cold and the lack of the conditions there, vital. Um, Fred, thank you for that report there, Fred Pleitgen. Okay, still to come here on First Move. The recovery super host, Airbnb booking surge as US borders reopen. I speak to the chief strategy officer and art of the age of the metaverse. NFT star Beeple sells a digital sculpture for $29 million. We'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move. Tourists are returning to the United States en masse after borders reopened on Monday. The one firm that knows all about that 
Airbnb. U.S. bookings by overseas visitors jumped 44% in the week after the announcement. And on Tuesday, it also announced a whole host of upgrades to meet the demands of the post-pandemic traveller, including a translation tool and insurance against damage from things like pets. Joining us is Nathan Blachazic. He's co-founder and chief strategy officer at Airbnb. Nathan, fantastic to have you on the show. Lots to discuss. Let's start by seeing what you're seeing in terms of booking for incoming visitors to the United States, which I believe historically is the largest inbound travel market in the world. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of interest. There was a huge spike um, on September 20th when it was announced that in November the borders were going to be open. We saw a 50 percent spike overnight. Um, And then again, uh, in October, when they announced the specific date of November 8th, we saw another 44 percent spike. Uh, in demand. So there's definitely a lot of pent up demand and travel. You know, this is a trend that's been playing out all year, though, uh, an increase in cross border travel. Uh, in Q1, for example, it was 20% of our business. By Q2, it was 27. And by Q3, it was 33%. So we're seeing a steady rise as borders reopen all around the world. I mean, if you were looking at the update that you gave in earnings as well, I believe you said the cross-border travel recovery overall accelerated to around 80% of where we were back in, in 2019. Where are we today? Are we still around 80% recovered? Yeah, well, that's the latest number that we have. But I think yeah. what's more important is the trend, right? We've seen this steady trend over the course of the year. So I think as uh, around the world restrictions continue to be loosened, there is just huge pent-up demand to to go abroad and to travel. So I think, you know, with that in mind, uh, we can expect, um, you know, further increases. I mean, you described COVID as being a defining moment for the company where a lot of people were saying, look, is this going to break you? Now you're talking about, I think, in terms of the announcements today, sort of future proofing the business for what Airbnb is saying is a travel revolution in a sense. And we've just changed the way we choose to travel, the length of time when we do travel and how we stay. Just talk about the changes that you've made and how that ties to our changing behaviors as far as travel is concerned. Right. So even though outbound and cross-border travel is coming back, we think travel is forever changed. Mm. And that's because people can really work and live from anywhere now, um, thanks to Zoom and being untethered uh, from the desk. You know, we've surveyed uh, uh, employees and 68 percent of them expect to have more flexibility in the future uh, with their their work setup. So, you know, we do think um, this what we've learned and experienced uh, over this period of the pandemic uh, is going to um, be available uh, to many in the future. And that's going to allow people to travel more flexibly. Um, you know, we see a lot of interest uh, in traveling uh, midweek. Mondays and Tuesdays um, have been the fastest growing days uh, for travel uh, relative to uh, years past. You know, we see 53% of people saying that, you know, they think about traveling off peak now. Uh, so it, it allows you not just to take, you know, big trips once a year, uh, but to take lots of uh, more spontaneous nearby stays um, and to even work uh, while you're doing that, work from another home. And with the announcements yesterday that, that we made, the new features, one of them is uh, verified Wi-Fi. So we noticed this year yeah. that 288 million people use the um, the Wi-Fi amenity filter. They wanted to find a home with Wi-Fi. But of course, most homes have Wi-Fi these days. What they're really asking is how fast is the Wi-Fi? Well, now going forward, we will have the speed certified and rated on each listing. Uh, so you can have the confidence that the home you're booking uh, will support your, uh, your, your digital work uh, lifestyle. 
Yeah, I mean, I saw in the July to September period, 20% of the nights booked with stays of one month or longer. So no one wants to be buying a home to stay and potentially to work in if the Wi-Fi is rubbish and they're going to go insane while they stay there. So that's sort of to attract and and protect some of the consumers on the platform. The other thing that you've introduced is air cover, $1 million damage protection and $1 million liability coverage for those that are hosting people in their homes. I mean, there's two crucial elements to, to your business. There's one attracting people to come and stay. There's the host that provide their homes uh, for people to come and stay in. Is it harder at this moment to attract consumers or to attract hosts to your platform? Because you have pretty stiff competition out there, let's be clear, in both aspects. Well, with this resurgence of travel, there's never been a better time to become a host on Airbnb. Mm. Um, So we, we think now's a great time to get started. And we know to get started, you need to have peace of mind. And that's where air cover comes into play. Um, you know, in the rare and unlikely event of any kind of property damage or any kind of uh, personal liability, there's a million dollar uh, coverage uh, included free of charge in every reservation. And that's something that makes Airbnb uh, very unique. Our competitors uh, don't offer this. Um, it's an original kind of innovation that we uh, first embarked on a decade ago, and we've been steadily improving. Um, and with yesterday's announcement, we make it even better um, by uh making it easier to um, submit claims, get paid out faster, coverage of uh, things like pets and some of these, um, you know, unusual uh, situations, but things that that we have heard from hosts that happen from time to time. Um, And and we want to make sure that hosts feel that they're they're well covered and taken care of, taken care of on Airbnb. I guess you call it free. There'll be people watching the TV going, hang on a second, it will be covered in the cut that you take from those hosts and the money that they get from someone staying. What is your cut if somebody's uh, renting out or hosting, providing their apartment or their house for longer than a one month period? What is the take that you, what's your commission on that? Just out of interest as a percent. Yeah, well, the take rate does vary, um, you know, based on the length of stay. So it typically varies uh, between six and fifteen percent for a long-term Ooh. stay. It's going to be on the low end uh, of that range, uh, so probably closer to six percent uh, from the guest, and then from the host, there's uh, uh, typically a three percent fee. Again, it, it is based on a few different variables, but these long-term stays have been incredibly popular. Um, even before the pandemic, but especially now. Uh, for example, over the holidays in December, what we've seen is uh, a, uh, a 68% increase in month-long stays uh, during uh, the December holidays. Um, so I think this is an exploding category. And again, a great opportunity for, for new hosts to come to the platform and, and participate in. Yeah, it's hugely exciting. What are your predictions as we head into 2022? As you said, it's the momentum here in the recovery that's important. At what point next year do you think will be recovered, if not perhaps greater, given our evolving travel tastes and our ability to move around more? Will your business be bigger than it was in 2019, in 2022? Well, there's, I think, great confidence in the future amongst consumers. We already see that. Um, We see that bookings 12 months from now. Um, some people are already booking uh, their, their travel for next summer and beyond. Wow. So bookings <laughs> that are 12 months from now or even further are up 50% um, relative to uh, years before. Uh, so wow. there's a, a pretty big um, you know, confidence and pre-planning going on right now. And I think that's a really strong indication of the fact that people want to travel next year and they're going to have the confidence to do so because they're already uh, making their plans. Um, as for Airbnb, um, you know, in our latest earnings, we've demonstrated already uh, growth over 20, 2019's uh, numbers. 
Um, so, you know, we're well on our way. And I think that's thanks to the fact that we've been able to um, meet consumers shifting um, demands uh, as consumers wanted to travel more nearby and go to rural areas. Uh, we were well suited to help them with that. As consumers wanted to stay long term for month long or more, we were able to help them with that. And now with outbound coming back, of course, that is our bread and butter, too. And with our new feature that we announced today, the translation engine, which translates all the content on our site, including the reviews into 60 different languages and does so with increased accuracy. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be well, well positioned to help people travel wherever they want to go in the world. Yeah, I like the I'm flexible listing as well. Discover new places, which helps consumers and hosts as well. Let, you can suggest to me where I should be going. And clearly, after the pandemic, people Absolutely. are ready to travel and Absolutely. And that's been and used 500 million times, for example, since we've launched <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yes, people are eager to get back out there. Nathan, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Co-founder Thanks, and Chief Strategy it. Officer at Airbnb. Great to have you. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. Now, do you remember this iconic moment for the world of art earlier this year? Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I think it probably means digital art is here to stay. I'm going to Disney World! <laughs> that was when the digital artist known as Beeple sold his NFT, non-fungible token art, called Every Day's the first 5,000 days for a whopping $69 million. Well, now Beeple is blending physical and digital. On Tuesday, his piece, Human One, was auctioned at Christie's for nearly $29 million, including fees. And I'm pleased to say Mike Winkleman, better known as Beeple, and Christie's America's director, Bonnie Brennan, join us now. Congratulations to you both, but especially to you, Mike, also Beeple. How does this moment feel like? I remember the last one. How does this moment feel like? <laughs> it's been a year. It's been a year. I will say that. It has been a year. Uh, you- yeah, just very excited and, and super happy with how everything turned out. Um, what do we need to understand about this work? Because you and I talked about this when the first piece sold. We were talking about this idea of blending physical art with digital art and when the two markets ultimately come together. Is this that moment for you? I, I believe so. I believe this is, is a piece that feels very digital um, and also feel, obviously is a physical object. So I think this is really the start of, of this merging of the physical and digital world that I think you're going to just continue to see. Bonnie, come in here because it's a couple of things, I think, for Christie's. It's the blending of the physical and the digital in terms of the art, but it was also an important moment to see the auction room reestablished and blended with the experience that you've had throughout the pandemic of digital auctions too. No, absolutely, Julia. We really had to take that, we had to recreate that live theater experience using only digital tools during the lockdown. And we saw lots of great things come out of that. We expanded our audience. Our digital fluency of our clients was greatly increased. 90% of our buyers uh, interface with Christie's now online. And so we wanted to make sure last night that we brought the best of both worlds together, that learning from the virtual auctions, but also the return to live theater that we've missed so much. And in my opinion, Julia, it was the perfect stage that was the first hybrid auction for Christie's. How perfect to bring to market the first hybrid work by Mike, by Beeple. What do you think this means, Beeple, Mike, in terms of the art world, in terms of the digital art world? You know, you and I discussed 
the first time you came on my show, whether your purchase of your 5,000 days represented a bubble for, for digital art. What do you feel now having, for the second time, had a really blowout sale piece at an auction at Christie's? Well, I think the bubble comment was taken a little out of context. Um, and, and so I think it's one of these things where this is an exciting new sort of world. It's not going away. Um, but people do need to be careful of, you know, what they're buying. Because, again, just like with the beginning of the Internet, there was a lot of excitement and, you know, everything didn't turn out to be Amazon or Google. And so I think that's where people do need to be careful. But this is not going away. This is very much uh, here to stay. And with NFTs in general, we're, we're absolutely still at the very beginning of, of use cases for them. Obviously, digital art is one of those, but there will be many, many more. I mean, we talk to people in the NFT, the non-fungible token space that are big buyers, and even they say to us, look, 95% of what's going on here might ultimately be very quickly worthless. What you're saying, I think, here is separate your artwork and what you're doing from perhaps what could be bubblicious in the space. There are other, you know, there, there's definitely, besides me, a bunch of other artists who I believe they're you know, work will hold value long term. But this is very similar to just if you were just go to buy any sort of like art uh, over a very long period of time, there's only a very, very small uh, percentage of art and artists that sort of retain value. And this is no different. Bonnie, talk to us about this, too, because um, the winner on Twitter presented his winning bid. Um Mike, you also responded, and I would love to show that tweet, but I can't because I'd have to blank most of it out because it was one of your spectacular swear words on there, so I can't show that. But look, this was the winning bid. Um, Bonnie, talk to us about the sort of melding of traditional art buyers, those that come to you for the old masters, for the contemporary artists of, of old, as we call them, the Rothkos, for example, versus what you're seeing in terms of interest for people's work, for, for NFTs. Are you seeing a blending of interest, even if it still is? It seems to be those that are more interested in the NFT space that are the guys that are coming up with the goods here and the money. No, absolutely, Julia. We've really, we've seen great interest, particularly in Beeple's work this season. We've had more interest than ever before in what were two really distinct audience, established collectors looking at more traditional art and NFT buyers. And Mike, I give him great credit for bringing those two audiences together. I stood in the galleries over the weekend, had a number of established clients and collectors come to me and say, show me the Beeple, take me to the Beeple. So, and that was reflected last night in the bidding. So hats off to Mike for really bringing these two worlds together. NFTs have opened an entirely new audience for us, new collectors. 400 new buyers have come to Christie's to participate in these NFT sales. They are averaging much younger than our traditional Christie's buyers. They're 38, 13 years younger than our other buyers across categories. And 50%, Julia, of the NFT buyers are millennials. So, and so much of that is due to the attraction that Mike's created. Mike, what's to stop you doing a Banksy with this? Because I know it's going to evolve over the coming years and you retain the licensing rights, I believe, to change how the um, artistry of this evolves. What's to stop you going, you know what, I've had enough, press the button and the whole thing goes black. Do you promise I you won't do, do that? that. <laughs> I, I could do that. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I feel like so that's no, no Banksy people <laughs> moment. Nah, nah, nah. That's no, not no, very no. interesting. Okay, just because checking. 
I think this is more, this work, I believe, is much more analogous to how art will be in the future. I believe art in the future will be, you have screens in your house or you have physical sort of like, you know, video sculptures or things like this that will continue to evolve and will continue to change. And I think that's one of the things um, that is much closer to the true potential of digital art that you just can't get with like a painting and a canvas. That's it. It is what it is. It's never going to change. But digital art has the opportunity, um, presents us with the opportunity to, to do something more than that. Mm. Bonnie, because that has huge implications for your business. And, you know, if I look at what you've done primarily in in this space this year, I mean, I was just doing the math there. I believe it's ninety four million dollars of it is is Beeple. You, you kind of need to diversify away from him as great as you are, Mike. <laughs> no offense to you. But Bonnie, what's the game plan there? Because in order to establish this, there needs to be more than than this. And I know there are other artists out there, but he is a huge chunk of your business. And you're right, Mike represents a great percentage of it, but we've had almost $140 million in NFT sales since March. It's an incredibly important new channel for us. Like I said, it's introduced new buyers, but you're right, we also have to diversify. And we've tried to do that. We've had a number of firsts this year offering NFTs in different geographic regions, like Hong Kong and London, but also across categories, Julia. Some more traditional categories have really embraced NFTs. Photography, for example, Mm. also 20th century design. So we're excited and we will continue to invest in ways we can introduce NFTs across our business. Yeah, and I came to see it yesterday and I was very excited. We did take lots of pictures, I'll be clear, by by the side of this. Um, We have about 30 seconds. Um, Mike, Beeple, um, how do you, what do you have to do to ensure that we are still talking about your art in two years, in five years, in 10 years, in 50 years? What do you think you have to do? I think it's honestly no different than any other sort of like artist. You have to continue to sort of, um, you know, inspire people and make work that, you know, sort of is provoking a strong emotional reaction. Anybody who's doing that will continue to be relevant. That's it. Congratulations. What a great year you've had. Wow. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you. And Bonnie, great to chat to you. Bonnie Brennan, president of Christie's America there and the digital and physical artist people. Thank you, guys. Okay, coming up on First Move from the Verdant Vineyards to the precious rainforests, we're marking our first quarter Earth Day by celebrating our planet and the people who are working to protect it. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Over the past 10 days, CNN has been covering the environmental challenges facing our planet. These issues can sometimes feel vast and overwhelming, but there are solutions. On Call to Earth Day, we're celebrating a planet worth protecting and the people creating a more sustainable future. Those who are driving awareness and also inspiring action. Throughout the day, CNN correspondents across the world will be bringing you stories about extraordinary individuals protecting our planet. And David McKenzie joins us live from an organic winery in South Africa. David, I think you've got one of the best jobs. I hope there was tasting involved. Talk to us about how this winery is helping protect the planet. Well, Julia, it's all about choices. And the mm. winemaker here, Tyrrell Mayberg, has been on this farm and his family for hundreds of years. And you'll remember some three years ago here in the Western Cape in South Africa, they were dealing with the ravages of a terrible drought, even talking of day zero, this doomsday scenario where the water 
could actually run out. And climate scientists say that this will become more frequent in places like Cape Town and here where I'm standing. And that's obviously a big problem for people who grow wine and just for humans in general. And what Mayberg is doing is getting back to basics. Their approach is counterintuitive. It's simple, but it can make a big difference. It's counterintuitive when you're dealing with climate change to stop irrigation. So why does it make sense to you? Well, the irrigation water has to come from somewhere. Um, and I just feel that, you know, farming with wine, wine is a little bit of a luxury product. You know, although most of us or a lot of us drink it every day, it still is a luxury product. But vines can survive without irrigation. So surely we should then focus on those, those varieties that do well under dryland conditions. And if I look back, you know, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, even my great-great-grandfather, you know, they farmed without any irrigation. Um, so it is possible. So I just think there's, where you can do it, there's actually a duty to do it. Come on. So why do you send the sheep into the vineyards? Basically, we, it's instead of using herbicide, so, you know, they, they'll eat the grass, keep the weeds under control, and while they're doing it, they will, you know, drop manure, and that adds a little bit of fertilization to the soil, but the main thing is it adds um, uh, biological activity. So the biggest uh, kind of key factor to making this conversion to kind of a greener or, uh, in our case, an organic way of farming is actually just to change the way you look at things. So, you know, back in the, in the old days, I would look at the vines and say, oh, everything's got to be meet, neatly mowed or also it's got to be, you know, I've got to see clean earth and every little piece of grass, you know, that's out of place, you know, I've got to deal with. And you've actually got to look at it and say, look, the crop is growing well. There's a little bit of a jungle in between, but that mimics nature. We took a, a, a very radical look at the way we were farming and especially the way we were managing our soil. In order to retain moisture in the soil, we've packed straw on the strip around the vines. The soil is protected um, you know, from the harsh effects of, of, of the hot sun. And we, we're now seeing we have better crops, we're actually making better wine. So I think it, it, it forced us into you know, something pretty good actually. Wow. So there was wine tasting, David. That looks incredible. I have to admit, not so long ago, I spent a wonderful weekend in Stellenbosch and I do remember it. So I clearly was abiding by the tasting rules and not drinking too much. Incredible to be there and incredible to see what they're doing. Well, it is incredible. And, you know, what is important here is that obviously agriculture globally contributes to climate change. So there is two things at play here. One is that uh, farmers that I've met over the last year or so talking about the issues of climate change, they are both trying to mitigate the effects and to contribute to the solutions. And this farm, Eustenberg uh, Wines, is doing a small uh, part of that. But here's another critical thing. This whole day on CNN is also about, as you said, what can people do to make a difference? And the consumer has a huge amount of power here. Uh, Mayberg says that while people say they like organic wines and wines that are maybe better for the environment, they're not necessarily translating that every time uh, to how they spend. And the markets and agriculture is driven by market tastes and consumer tastes. So if the public goes out there and makes choices based on what they feel can have an impact on the environment, uh, they should do it because that is actually uh, has a, a significant effect overall on 
our fight against the climate crisis. It's such a great point. It comes down to choices for the farmers and how they run their farms, but also for us as consumers, not just to talk about this and then go home and buy any bottle. You have to look for the ones that are sustainable and are organic and are making the best choices for our planet. David, thank you so much for that. David McKenzie there. Now, one of the organizations protecting our planet is the Rainforest Alliance. It's best known for its food label, exactly what we were just discussing, featuring a green frog. More than two million farmers around the world have been certified by the Rainforest Alliance for following its sustainability standards. And you can find products with the seal now in more than 100 countries. And joining us now is the Rainforest Alliance CEO, Santiago Gowland. Santiago, great to have you with us. What do we need to understand about what you do and what that green frog represents, whether it's on the part of the retailers where we buy products or for the farms that are producing the the materials, the raw materials? Hello, Julia. Thanks so much for this. And first of all, kudos for dedicating your channels to Call to Earth. We did more of these initiatives to, you know, get into mainstream media. And, uh, you know, it's also very timely with the COP26 happening right now in Glasgow, where nature-based solutions, everything that has to do with the role nature plays in mitigating climate change, which can add up to 37% of the climate mitigation, is front and center of the COP discussions. So the Rainforest Alliance for more than 35, for more than 30 years, has been working on this food and agriculture sectors and forestry sectors in the tropical forests. And as you know, tropical forests like the Mayan forest or the Amazon or the Congo Basin are crucial to climate biodiversity, but also livelihoods. More than 1.5 billion people live in this uh, tropical forest, one billion of which live in poverty. So what the Rainforest Alliance does is work at the supply level with farmers, really supporting them on technical assistance to um, employ uh, sustainability practices like agroforestry or regeneration. But we also work at the demand level giving people, citizens, an easy choice to support the work that's going on on the ground. And we work also at the market rules, advocating to align policies and voluntary standards to these sustainability practices. And how do you verify that those standards are being kept to? So if someone sees the green frog and says, OK, I know that this is abiding by your standards, how did we know actually that you're going into these communities and that you're ensuring that the practices that you're promising are, promising are being followed? Yes, the certification is not a silver bullet, of course, yeah. but uh, it does kind of uh, work with farmers through auditing systems and assurance and verification and traceability to uh, address these issues and uh, surface them and then design interventions to solve them. Those could be, you know, deforestation issues, etc. And we use both uh, auditors, but also technology like uh, satellite technology to look at those things. Now, of course, some of those issues are deeply rooted. They are systemic in some of the countries and communities in which we work, which are high risk. And uh, so it's never perfect. And that's why we need a shared responsibility in all the actors in the supply chain and working with governments and multilaterals to address some of those root causes to some of the uh, unsustainable practices. You know, I was looking at your website and two of the things that struck me, not only as you've said to help these farmers and these communities mitigate the impact of climate change, but it's also to adapt 
for the impact of climate change too. And I think we need to talk about these as two separate things and understand understand what's going on. How well are we tackling the adaption part of the climate change situation and how do you do that? It's interesting because uh, right now, as you know, climate change is affecting many of these communities from floods to fires to you name it, right? So the Rainforest Alliance has in its uh, standards technical assistance for adaptation, climate adaptation. That goes all the way from agroforestry. So for example, growing coffee or cocoa under shade of trees, which not only increases carbon sequestration, but also boosts biodiversity and increases productivity on those communities because those landscapes become more resilient to water, to rain control, water absorption and regulation, to fighting fires, etc. So it's a kind of a win-win right now to apply nature-based solutions to enhance productivity, which increases livelihoods, and in doing so, tackle climate and biodiversity goals. Yeah, I know you have so much going on. Come back and talk to us, please. We will continue the conversation. Great to have you on the show today, the CEO of the Rainforest Alliance, Santiago Garland. Thank you, sir. And you can learn more about the environmental challenges facing our planet and what's being done to address some of them on our website. Head to cnn.com forward slash call to earth. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. investors seeing red this Wednesday in midweek retreat as U.S. consumer inflation numbers come in scorching hot. Consumer prices rising to its highest level since 1990 last month. Food, gas and used car costs all surging. The big question, of course, will the Fed be forced to start raising rates sooner than expected? We'll ask that several more times before they do. Also today, wild swings for Tesla in early trade, too. Shares briefly falling below that $1,000 a share level before bouncing sharply in the past few minutes. Tesla lost some of its charge on Tuesday, falling 12% as Musk mulls a stock sale for tax purposes. But of course, context is everything. Tesla's still up more than 40%. There you can see it year to date. And the EU spelling trouble for Alphabet, the second highest EU court upholding the Competition Commission's $2.8 billion fine against the company for dominating web search. Alphabet can still appeal today's ruling. It says it's already made changes to comply with EU demands. And that's just about it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.